If you would please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. We've been studying the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, a book that was written during the time of Nehemiah. You may, have been, you may remember it's been more than 70 years since the first group of exiles returned. Their expectations have not been met. They read the prophets, and the prophets spoke of the land rebounding with miraculous fruitfulness. They spoke of a population that would grow to great size. They spoke of a kingdom in which there would be a king as great as David himself. And all nations would serve them. And none of this had happened. In fact, the opposite was true. The land was plagued with frequent droughts and famines. The population was a fraction of what it had been. And they were still under foreign control, now under the Persians. So what does Malachi write to them? What is his letter about? The theme of this book is God's unchanging love. That is, God still loves his people in spite of the fact that circumstances may say the opposite. If you look at the second verse of the book, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Malachi's audience was skeptical. Times were hard and they had become hardened. Still, Malachi tells them, the Lord loves you. This is review. Um, those of you who have been here, ask for your patience. But we have looked at the issue of God's love, that it is marked by at least three characteristics. First of all, it is independent. God loves because it is his nature, not because he has to. God is Trinity, three in one. There has always been love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are Trinitarian. We believe in the Trinity. And I'm, I'm convinced that only those who hold to the Trinity can, in fact, say that God is love. Because if God is single, then he can only love if there's something else to love. So he must create in order to love, which is fine. But then you can't say that God is love. But we can say that God is love because even before God created the world, there was love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. God loves because he chooses to love. He is free to do as he pleases. The second thing that we've seen is that God's love is unconditional. Israel was reminded of this time and time again, and we find uh, expressions in the Old Testament for his own sake, for his name's sake, that God did what he did. We should not say that God loves because we are lovely, that we are love-worthy. Neither can we say that God loves because he sees potential. Somewhere down the road, we're going to turn it around and we're going to be wonderful people. And then it will make sense that God loves us. What we find in scripture is that God loves where there is nothing to love, when there is nothing worthy of love. And then the third thing that we've seen is that God's love is intimate and personal. Israel doubted God's love for them. Perhaps it doesn't help how the book starts. If you look at the first verse in chapter 1, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So we need to be clear. This is the word of the Lord through Malachi. Okay, This is God speaking through his prophet. God will not speak again through a prophet for four centuries. This is the last word of God until John the Baptist comes along. So it's pretty important. 
But we may miss something here because of the NIV. It says the oracle, and we think of oracle as a prophecy, you know, the, the Delphi oracle, you know, that some special word is being given. If you look at the King James and some of the older translations, it is the burden of the Lord, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And the word burden conveys with it, I think, a certain ominous, ominous quality. This word is used 27 times in the Old Testament. And with two exceptions, which are found in the book of Proverbs, it's always used in the context of a prophecy that is threatening. So here is a prophecy that is threatening, and then it starts out, God loves you. And the people are like, we don't think so. What we find in the intended audience is carelessness, indifference, half-heartedness, and actually sheer boredom. They are bored with the things of God. They are the chosen people of God. They feel that God hasn't lived up to their end of, or his end of the bargain. It never occurs to them that they haven't lived up to their end of the, of the bargain, of the covenant. So we see in verse number six that he is a father, but no honor is given. He is a master, but no respect is shown. The carelessness is seen in their worship. It is seen in the animals that they bring to God, um, to be sacrificed. They are blind, they are lame, and they are diseased. We've spent some time looking at this. This is unacceptable. And it is, in fact, the priests who allow this to happen. The priests who are the mediators between Israel and God. The priests who are the teachers of Israel. The priests who are the judges. When you can't make a decision, they are the ones who judge. They should not have accepted these unacceptable offerings. But, in fact, they do. As God says, you show contempt for my name. You place defiled food on my altar. You say the Lord's table is contemptible. And as we've seen, this is sort of a give and take. God anticipates them asking a question. So he says, you show contempt for my name. How have we shown contempt for your name? And then God gives them an answer. You have this back and forth that's going on. There needs to be a recognition, and I think they failed to recognize, that in giving an offering that is unacceptable, they are showing contempt, not simply for the situation, the arrangement, they are showing contempt for God. That is, this is personal, deeply personal. We affirm that God's love is personal, should not our response to him, in fact, be personal. And it is, and what we see here is that the response is not what it should be. As we get to the end of chapter 1, we see that they're in fact just simply bored with it. And so God is speaking, and he speaks of the consequences that are going to come. But this raises a question that we've dealt with. I thought God's love was unconditional. It, It seems like if you don't do the right thing, God's not going to love you anymore. And that's not the issue at all. God's love is unconditional, but because he loves his people, he is not going to allow them to get away with what they shouldn't be doing. If he loved them, and he does, then he will correct them. If he doesn't love them, then yeah, you guys do whatever you want. Uh, Read the first part of Hebrews chapter 12. Um, Very clear about this. God corrects those who are his children, those who belong to him. And if God doesn't correct you, then you're apparently not his child and you can do whatever you want. Well, Israel belongs to God 
and therefore he is correcting them. And he begins at the top with the priests. They are the ones who should be teaching the people. So in chapter 2, we see that God addresses the priests. They have no love for his glory or his reputation. If you follow, I'll just read this quickly, verses 1, 2, and 3. And now this admonition is for you, O priest. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. And because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. They show no love for God's glory, and there will be consequences, because he loves them. It's precisely because he does. And as we saw, the language here is quite graphic, but somehow the translators have sort of toned it down. He will smear feces on their face. You see, when you, sacri- when you kill an animal, there is still feces inside the animal. And that has to be taken outside the camp and burned. It had taken away from the temple and burned. And God says, no, no, we're not going to burn it. I'm going to put it on you, and then I'm going to take you outside and burn you. Well, this doesn't sound very lovely, does it? But if they're not doing what they should be doing, then they need to be corrected. And then we saw that they had no love for God's law in contrast to their ancestor, Levi. They are Levites. They're from that tribe. They're not like their ancestor, Levi. Look, if you would, beginning in verse 4. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. God wants the covenant to continue. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. God wants the covenant to continue, and so he warns the priest. And by the way, we saw this last week in verse number 7. Because he is the messenger of the Lord, this is the only time this is used of a priest. Otherwise, it is always in reference to the angel of the Lord who is actually Jesus in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ. So this is is spectacular. You are priest. You are the messenger of God. You are like the angel of the Lord. And and look at what you've done. Today we will see there are two other areas in which there is no love. They have no love or show no love for God's people. And they show no love for the gift of a marriage partner. First of all, no love for God's people. Verses 10 through 12. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. You might wonder, where do I get no love for God's people in these three verses? Well, there's a saying, a proverb, you might want to say, like father, like son. And here, thus far in this book, we can surmise that like priest, 
like people. That the priests set the example and the people follow that example. And the picture thus far has not been pretty. In fact, if this is how the priests are behaving, one can only imagine how the people are behaving. Well, we know how they're behaving. They're bringing unacceptable offerings to worship God. The key to this section rests in the question in verse number 10. Have we not all one father? Some have used this statement to to sort of preach or put forth the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of humanity. Um, Particularly if you look at the second question, did not one God create us? And it would seem to point in this direction, but if you keep reading, I think it becomes abundantly clear as the Lord through Malachi speaks to Israel. And he mentions the covenant, the covenant that God entered into with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and then with Israel at Mount Sinai. The covenant with Levi has just been mentioned in verses 5 and 8. They all have one father. They're all siblings. They're brothers and sisters. And the covenant that was made was made with their ancestors. They are profaning that covenant. They are breaking faith with one another by doing the things that they're doing. By the way, the ESV has, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? How have they broken faith with one another? Um, By the way, it's clear that they've done so, if you look at verse number 11. But here it is, a detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. In our study of Nehemiah, we saw that after 12 years of being governor in Judah, Nehemiah goes back to the king because he was close to the king, he served the king. And after a period of time, we don't know how long, he comes back. And what he finds is that in his absence, things have really gone downhill. The priests are neglecting their duties. Uh, There's a neglect of the tithe, neglect uh, profaning of the Sabbath, and intermarriage with foreign women. It is this last issue that Malachi is addressing. But there's something else. This is from Nehemiah 13. One of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. In our study of Ezra, we saw that when he came back to Jerusalem, he was the second wave, 54 years after the first wave of return. He is shocked. He is appalled and grief-stricken at what he finds. This is Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Like priests, like people. One could make the case, easily I I suspect, that the priests in fact did not love the people that they were appointed to serve, in that they did not set a good example And in fact, they set a terrible example and they did not correct the mistakes, the wrongs that the people had done. The priests who stand between the people and God, 
See, now we can pray directly to God through Jesus. He is our mediator. But back then, the people through the priests spoke to God. These very people are desecrating the temple. They're desecrating the place where God has put his name. How? By marrying the daughter of a foreign god. And here is the issue. It isn't primarily that they married foreign women, but they married women who belonged, who worshipped a foreign god. So here you have a man who is a mediator for Israel between them and God, standing before the Lord in the place of the people, praying to the Lord in the place of the people, offering sacrifices to the Lord for the people, and he's married to someone who worships a false god. He has married the daughter of a false god. And the consequences are quite real in verse number 12. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Simply put, anyone who does this, who marries the daughter of a false god, will be cut off from the people of Israel. It doesn't matter who he is. It does not matter who he is. Even if he is a priest and brings offerings to the Lord Almighty, he's going to be cut off. So they have no love for the people of Israel. And then lastly, they have no love for the gift of a marriage partner. Verse number 12 ends with bringing an offering or bringing offerings to the Lord Almighty. Verse 13 continues in this vein with a different focus, a different emphasis. Verse 13 Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. In line with the theme of this book, the people are essentially saying, God doesn't love us anymore. And they are weeping and wailing. They are flooding the altar, not literally, but figuratively with tears. God doesn't love us. Look, we are serving him, we've brought our offerings, and he doesn't love us. But we need to understand that their tears, their wailing, their weeping, they were caused by the fact that God did not reward or regard their offerings. But these aren't tears of repentance. It isn't, we are sorry, we're not supposed to bring blind animals and I brought a blind animal. We're not supposed to bring diseased animals, I brought a diseased animal. There's none of this, no repentance. It's like it's a child who does not get his or her way. It's a complaining crying. There's a sadness because God hasn't done what they think he should. It's not because they haven't done what they should. I'm reminded of what we read read regarding Esau in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And this passage used to really throw me when I was younger. Um, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. You may remember he sold it to Jacob, his twin brother. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessings, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. And he used to think, that's terrible. Esau wanted to repent, but he couldn't. No. Esau didn't want to repent. He wanted the blessing. So he goes to Isaac, his father, and says, don't you have a blessing for me? He wept, not because he had done wrong, but because he wanted the blessing. Repentance was not his aim. And this is, it is, this is the way it is with Malachi's audience. 
they don't seem to understand why God is not honoring or rewarding their offerings. Look at verse number 14. You ask why? This is part of that that give and take, the back and forth. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Okay, there's a lot here. Um, Let's begin with the matter of marriage. And let's look at it in light of creation, fall, and redemption. That is, how did God intend it originally? What happened because of sin? And now that we are in Christ, how is it being redeemed? How is it being reshaped? Marriage was instituted in the garden by God. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Question. When Adam and Eve got married, we could put it that way, who was the witness? God was. God was the witness to their marriage. After Adam and Eve sinned and are cast out of the garden, there is still marriage. And in a fallen world, who is the witness? We may have human witnesses, but God is still the witness to the marriage. The community stands as a witness. That's why when there's a ceremony, we have people there to publicly, the couple is saying, we are getting married. We're going to live together as husband and wife. And the community is there to say, yes, we witness this. And we're going to hold you to it. We're going to hold you accountable. What about marriage and redemption? We have the words of Jesus in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? By the way, just parenthetical here. At this point, um, uh, Phariseeism through Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, had taken a very, very lax view of divorce to the point where it was said that if a woman burned her husband's supper, he could divorce her. So that's why the Pharisees say for any and every, any, any reason, any cause, any reason you want to divorce, can a man do this? Jesus, what do you think? They're trying to put him in a corner because if Jesus says no, then all the men are going to be unhappy because they want to be able to get out of a marriage that they don't like. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard 
but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. What I would point out here is when they ask him about marriage, Jesus goes back to creation. He goes back to Adam and Eve. That's how God intended it to be. What did they do? They go to the fall. They go to the law. What God allowed through Moses. Because men were in fact ditching their wives and the wife had nothing to say. I used to be married to this guy. So they had to give them a piece of paper, a bill of divorce. But that's the exception. That's in a fallen world. That's how they want to define marriage. And Jesus says, no, let's go back. In fact, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. The Pharisees point to the exception. Jesus points to the rule. So we should not be surprised now here in Malachi when God says, I hate divorce. But that's not the full statement, is it? I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And if you look at the rest of this section, the focus is on Jewish men divorcing Jewish women in order to marry pagan women. That's the issue here. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. The Lord is acting as witness. He is the witness. And marriage is a covenant. The wife is, in fact, partner with her husband. She is the wife of the marriage covenant. We find here the, the idea of oneness in marriage and not only of flesh, that as the marriage is consummated, they are one flesh, but they are also one spirit. They are one in flesh and in spirit. And the result is godly offspring. There are children that are the result of marriage. So God says, do not break faith with the wife of your youth. This expression, the wife of your youth, may have in fact been taken from Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5 as a whole chapter deals as a warning against adultery. It's a call to faithfulness in marriage. Verse number 18 in Proverbs 5, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. You'll notice, by the way, that the word violence comes into play, which seems sort of out of place in verse number 16. I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as with his garment. I think this refers to the ancient custom that whenever a man was saying, this is the woman I'm going to marry, he would put his robe, his garment over her. And if you go back to Ruth chapter 2, and she spends the night at his feet, she puts his robe over him to say, you may claim me as your wife. Well, that very act was in fact becoming an act of violence as men were abandoning the wives they had married when they were young and now they're marrying somebody else. And it isn't just getting another wife. Okay. And it isn't just that they're marrying someone who's not Jewish. They're marrying someone who is a pagan, someone who does not worship the true God. The priests show no love for the gift of a marriage partner. They are leading the way, like priest-like people. They are the ones marrying pagan women. They should know. They should know better that gift, the gift that God gives in marriage. Proverbs 18.22 He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. But no, they have discarded this gift. 
this wonderful thing from God, this gift of a wife, the wife of their youth, the wife of the marriage covenant. They've broken faith with them. And I think that would be wrong in itself. But they've gone a step further, and now they're married women who belong to foreign gods. See, this is not a racial issue, and I want to make that clear. It isn't a racial issue. It's not that they've married Gentile women. Because you may remember the story of Bathsheba. She was married to Uriah the Hittite. And he's always known as Uriah the Hittite. He wasn't Jewish. But he worshipped the true God. Became a part of Israel. But these men, these priests, these mediators, the ones who pray to God for the people of Israel, they in fact are married to pagan women, women who are the daughters of foreign gods. I've tried to make it clear as we've gone through Ezra, Haggai, and Nehemiah, and now Malachi, that this is not a racial issue. It may sound that way. The problem is the joining together of a man and a woman. It's the one flesh and one spirit. How does this work out if one of them worships a false god? How can they be one spirit? Well, as we saw several weeks ago with the story of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he married pagan women, and at the end of his life, he was worshiping the most abominable deities of the Middle, uh, Middle East at that time, Chemosh and Molech. How does this happen? Well, because in marriage, there is consummation, there is a union, and it's not merely physical, but it is also spiritual. And if a priest failed to make a distinction between a Jewish woman who belonged to God and a pagan woman who belonged to a foreign God, then you're not that far away from not making a distinction between God and that foreign God, between God and a pagan God. The next step is going to be a doozy because you're already at the precipice. You're already at the end. You've already said, yeah, there's really no difference. You marry a covenant woman, a woman who is Jewish, that's fine. You want to marry a woman who worships Chemosh or Molech or Ashtoreth, that's that's no, no difference. Really? I think there's a difference between God and false gods. And if anybody, if anybody should know this, the priest should know this. I've mentioned throughout our study in Malachi that we need to remember that the words of Scripture in the Old Testament, oftentimes in the New Testament, were written and addressed to a specific people, a specific situation, at a specific time, a specific culture. And we, as we read it, are a specific people, specific time, specific place and culture. And we need to be careful how we take what we read and apply it to ourselves. As I said earlier, marriage is not an issue. The issue here is not racial, but one of faith and one of covenant. The nature of our relationship with God is seen in the nature of our relationship with his people. In this specific case between a husband and wife. And what we see in the priests who are horrendous examples to Israel is they have no love for God's reputation They have no love for God's word, his law. They have no love for the people of Israel. And they have no love for the wives that God has given them. 
and yet they want God to bless them. Um, if you look at verse number 9 of chapter 1, now implore God to be gracious to us. We want to be blessed. We want God to bless us. Well, you know what, priest? Maybe if you did what you were supposed to be doing, maybe if you stopped what you were doing, then God would begin to listen to you. I thought God loves us. Verse number 2, I have loved you. God does love them. It's precisely because he loves them, he's not going to tolerate this behavior. It has to be corrected. God is indeed patient. I've mentioned to you that uh, a professor of missions, who was once a missionary himself in England, uh, recently uh, put out a book on the first three centuries of the church. And what he wanted to discover was, how is it that the church, which began as this small sect, if you wish, in Palestine, by the third century, as we come to the fourth century in Constantine, it becomes the official empire religion. How does that happen? So did they have a special mission strategy? Did they have outreach programs? Uh, evangelism explosion? You know, something to get people's attention? And what he found was that all the important writings from the first three centuries deal with one thing. Patience. Patience. And what they say is, look at the Old Testament. God is patient with his people. Look at Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus is patient. We should be patient as well. And God is. He loves his people. But this behavior is unacceptable. And it needs to be corrected. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you love us. And though there may be times in our lives when circumstances scream that you do not love us any longer, when difficulties surround us seem to overwhelm us, we may really, really begin to wonder if you do love us. The reality is you're always there with us. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without you knowing about it, without you being there. The hairs of our head are numbered. You love us deeply and intimately. There may be times in our lives when we are not living as we should. We are not doing as you have commanded. And we know better. And for that time, you may withdraw from us for a while. We begin to panic and wonder where you are. Do you no longer love us? I thank you that you do love us with an everlasting love. And because of that, in your gentle way, you correct us. And you try to bring us closer to yourself. I thank you you haven't abandoned us. You've given us your Holy Spirit that lives within us. May he speak to our hearts today from what we've heard. May we come to see that we are to love you, or to love your word, your people, and we are to be thankful for the gifts you have given us, particularly the gift of a spouse, a wonderful gift, a generous gift from you. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We pray for our missionaries, our brothers and sisters around this planet. You know where they are. Watch over them and keep them safe. We 
thank you again for the wonderful news from Kim. Watch over her and the baby as her pregnancy develops. As we gather with friends and family this week to give thanks, may we be reminded that every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven from you. May your spirit and grace go with us. We thank you for loving us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.